0: On the lonely shores I lay, a moor of the galaxy above belay, I stand with apathy, looking coldly, precociously I jump into the sea, and embrace the void.
1: quite calming actually. It's like this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it.
0: It's like I'm in a black void trying to reach the news story. Ah!
1: This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see...
0: Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 86 of Embrace the Void, the show that congeals to your skull like a well-placed egg. I am your host, Aaron, and with me as always is the nope rope to my delicious plumpness, GW. So we've got a great interview today. I just need to do one quick announcement beforehand. I am formally, uh, announcing that I am, I'm using my proper name going forward with the podcasting uh, activities and the online, uh, stuff. I, you know, it's weird. It's been almost, it's been two years now that we've been doing this show. And in the two years since we started, it feels like, podcasting has become sort of much more mainstream, uh, and I'm a lot less worried about it ruining the career I'm probably not going to end up having anyway. So, uh, I'm going to be going by Aaron Rabinowitz from now on, um, which is, yes, it turns out my name is Jewish. Um, I am not, but there you go. And so, yeah, that's that. Um, so now we've got this great interview with uh, Toby Buckle from the Political Philosophy Podcast. And I mention uh, his name in the podcast here because he had me on uh, the Political Philosophy Podcast recently on episode 35 of season two. And there's going to be... A part 2.36 that's going to be out soon. And and some of the stuff that we talk about in this episode is a bit of a carryover from those conversations. They're sort of both on our minds a little bit still. So um, I, I would highly recommend going and listening to those episodes, uh, maybe before listening to the rest of this episode, um, if you want to have sort of the full picture of what we're doing here. But a lot of it is stuff that we've talked about on the show before, like moral luck and moral realism and stuff. So that being said, let's get on to it. Our guest this week, uh, very excited, uh, Toby Buckle of the Political Philosophy Podcast. Uh, Toby uh, had me on his show recently, and I'm really glad to be having him here joining us to talk about uh, lots of things that I think relate to various things we've gotten to on the show already. So, uh, Toby, do you want to say hi to The Void?
1: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So, Toby, do you want to start by just giving folks a little bit of background, how you got your way into doing a political philosophy podcast?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm a Brit living in America. I did my uh, undergrad and postgrad. I did an MA. I didn't do a PhD in the UK, and I did those in politics and philosophy. And that's always interested me. But then I didn't go the academic route. I've spent the last probably about eight years working in the States for a variety of progressive left-wing courses. So I've worked for a bunch of democratic candidates. I've worked for gay civil rights. I spent four years at Amnesty International working um, for human rights all over the world. Um, finally, I've spent the last six months at World Animal Protection campaigning on issues like factory farming and uh, environmental change, stuff like that. Um, so that's my my, my background is someone who has some, not a huge amount, but some philosophical training. but I've spent most of my life in like hands-on advocacy. And I just got into the podcast as something to do in um, my spare time. I never expected it to take off. I just reached out to some college professors who I either knew a little bit or I thought were interesting, and it just passed a year I've been doing this, last week, and we have gained something of a following, which is kind of crazy. I It was just this dumb hobby that kind of took off, mm-hmm. and
0: yeah, we've covered a whole bunch of topics, which I'm sure we'll get into some of them today, and yeah, that's a bit of background. Great. What are um some of the things that your your favourite topics that within politics and things that you've covered so far? Yeah, so I've been doing political ideologies quite a
1: lot on my show recently. Um. So not just like, I am a liberal and here's why I'm a liberal, but what does it actually mean to be a liberal? How do we, or a conservative or a socialist or a fascist even for that matter, how do we define them? How do we create typologies of them? Um, That's something I've been really interested in. I've also just taken on, as you know, right, a number of sort of um, more foundational moral philosophy topics. So like, do we have or to what extent do we have moral responsibility? are concepts of praise and blame appropriate? And I've sort of staked out a position for myself there as a self-described philosophic meathead, where mm-hmm. I'm just like, yeah, no, essentially classical utilitarianism is just true, and the rest is just bells and whistles. Oh, okay. And, and, and as you know, we went back and forth on that a little bit. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, I don't want to scoop you too much and on then- that. And then...
1: I have also been getting into some online fights on social justice issues. Um, I had Jordan Peterson fans sat on me for a bit. um, <laughs> um like fun. Yeah, yeah. Those, those guys are passionate. Um will swarm. Yeah. Um, and I've generally... I didn't really mean to get onto that with the show, but I think it does overlap with political philosophy. I've generally taken... I guess you could say a fairly hard left perspective on issues like reparations for slavery, prison abolition, um, uh, gender equality, understanding gender as a spectrum or a sort of something more fluid than a binary. Um, and I'm not trying to say any of that to win woke points. It just seems correct to me, or at least the, the critiques people make of social justice seem incorrect to me. And I've pushed back against them. So anyway, that's that's some of the stuff that I talk about.
2: It's it's interesting that you talk about uh at the beginning there, you know, trying to define like what is a progressive, what is a conservative, like and and trying to see what those mean, right? In a way you can you can translate that to a question of what ought a progressive to do or what ought a social justice warrior to do. And it reminds me of this episode of The Daily I I listened to many months ago where it was this, I believe she was a congresswoman, but I could be wrong about that, who was a very liberal congresswoman, but she actually was um, pro-life, not Mm pro-choice. And it made me start thinking about how one of the main uh, philosophies of the Democrats are diversity, right? That diversity is very important in every regard, except for diversity of thought. And I thought that that was an interesting dichotomy there that when, um, it seems to me, and I could be wrong there, but when a liberal sort of steps out of line of the lockstep of what a liberal should do, they are definitely Petersoned uh, upon
1: <laughs>
0: I think it depends on certain things, right? I mean, like, I think it's, it's... You're right that when there come to certain moral claims, especially leftists will take a very hard-lined approach with regard to people who transgress on those moral claims. I think they're a lot more permissive on on disagreement on a lot of other kinds of things. But I do think you're right that, like... For a lot of folks, that's a like no-go area, or there are certain kinds of no-go ethical areas. What do you think, Toby? Uh, okay, so there's a couple
1: of different answers I can give to that. Um, mm-hmm. The first one is just as how politics actually um, unfolds itself in the US, is I think the sort of purity backlash, if you can call it that, is yeah. actually a lot stronger on the right than it is on the left um and just you know anecdotally from my own experience the times that i have really had like an online mobs maybe an an online rabble right shall we say <laughs> descend on me have been for critiquing right-wing figures um whereas i have said critical things of the left on social justice and I get one or two like fairly polite emails about it, you know? So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just I'm I'm just not I, I think there's purity policing on both sides. I'm not sure that it's something unique or even disproportionate on the left. Now as as to the question, um I think there's sort of an answer liberals can give about like, oh, we value diversity but not diversity of thought Well, to tie it back to, like, the moral luck thing, you should value diversity of things that people can't really change about themselves, right? So you should value diversity of race, of gender, maybe even of religion, insofar as religion is a cultural category which you're born into. But on things like whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, these are conscious decisions people make about their worldview that we, they are, at least in theory, persuadable on, so it's not unreasonable to try and persuade them. Now, of course, it's an open question as to whether shaming and castigating them is the right tactic to try and change them. My general opinion would be that it isn't, but I don't think it's, it's, it's us being intolerant or not diverse to say we are going to apply social and conversational pressure to try and change someone's mind
0: away from a pro-life position, say. I
2: get, I could feel Aaron's spider sense tingling on that one.
0: Well, I mean, I would, I would of course, caveat that by saying that your beliefs are just as much a matter of luck and your ideology is as much a matter of luck as, your, um, as any of the other things that, that you're mentioning there. But... I do agree in large part sort of with what he's saying that it it makes good sense to try to change people's beliefs in these kinds of ways. And we are able to do so. And one of the ways to do so is to say, look, if you're going to keep banging on about this idea that this group of people aren't people and don't need to be treated like people, you're not going to be invited to Thanksgiving anymore And, like, that has an effect of sometimes bringing people to rethink their choices. Or uh, if it doesn't, then, like, there's no – I don't think there's a strong moral obligation to continue to allow everyone into your tent for the sake of diversity. Um, I think that – especially individuals who are strongly against the very nature of diversity, right? You get a bit of a paradox of tolerance going there. If I can make – and we –
1: I'm – mindful of the risk of just disappearing back into the moral <laughs>
0: luck particular. I didn't bring it up. I just want to point that out. I didn't say any of those words first. All right. <laughs> I want to make one more point about how this relates
1: to social justice and diversity and inclusion, and then I'm done. Which mm-hmm. is, yes, it, it is absolutely true, or at least it seems true to me or, or probable to me, that people's ideologies, their foundational moral worldviews are not chosen um, in the same way as race or gender is not chosen. My point was more that they are uh, uh, amenable to persuasion in a way that the mm-hmm. race isn't. Now, actually, when it comes right down to it, I don't think that shaming or not inviting someone to Thanksgiving, just at a purely tactical level, is the is the the most. The, the the best way to do that, um, and I think actually thinking carefully about moral luck um, helps us communicate better with people. So if you hold homophobic views, just say I know you don't, but just say um, if I what are, there's no sense of deep moral responsibility in me condemning you, right? I'm not, I don't believe you're a bad person. I believe you just happen to hold these views. So what at my best am I saying if I try to condemn them? At its best, it's a sort of retroactive exhortation. I'm appealing to you to be better in the future, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's the only way that's consistent with moral luck. So instead of me saying, Aaron, you are a bad person, I think it makes much more sense for me to say, Aaron, I believe that you can be better than this.
0: And I'm not giving up on you. (laughs) I, uh, I agree with you and everything, what you're saying, except I just want to make sure that I do think that one of the things that should be in the toolbox is the short, sharp shock that like, I agree with you completely that change comes as a result of building up a relationship with someone and, in motivating them to be better by, you know, con- connecting your liking for them, your appreciation with them, with them wanting to grow as that kind of person. Um, I also think that you need to be able to say to a person, "Hey, look, you know, I'm I'm on board with you figuring your way out through this stuff." But if it really does feel like you're not doing that, you're just <clears throat> using our relationship to feel a little bit more okay about something that I think is inappropriate. I'm eventually going to say, no, I'm not all right with this anymore and walk away from that. And that's so, yeah. fine. And yeah, there's
1: also a case of like social standards and social norms as useful. Um, but the empirical data on what persuades bigots is quite clear. It's it's the relationships they have. Like that's what moves people.
0: Yeah, but it's it's complicated. <laughs> no, no. Oh, yeah. No, none of this is easy.
2: No, sorry, it's funny you say that, because this is actually something that Aaron and I have a respectful disagreement on as well, because I, I completely agree with you, Toby, that it's the stories we hear of people that, you know, were reformed neo-Nazis or, or reformed people with really terrible views. Statistically speaking, it seems that the thing that changes that is some relationship with someone not, you know, romantic specifically, but some relationship with someone that changed their mind, that showed them a different path. that And I'm not saying that someone can't have uh, an emotional reaction. I think that's totally fine. Right? And I don't think anyone is obligated to do so. But in terms of changing people's minds, it seems like the best way to change someone's mind is through a personal relationship.
0: Okay, so I think this is a good conversation, definitely one that I wanted to get into with Utopia because one of the things I wanted to ask was you've I've listened to some of your stuff and you talk a fair bit about the 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 war of language that's going on in politics and the war of ideological definitions. and i'm I'm interested in that especially for, you know, so the the on the ground troops on the internet who are fighting that war of language because I do think that. You know, more than just, like, the conversation of, well, you know, how many sit-downs with a white nationalist does it take to get them to see people of color as being valuable? I do think there's another sort of war going on right now, which is how long do I engage with some random troll on Twitter where I'm trying to, like, convey to them, I think this version of fairness is better than their version of fairness. Do you want to start maybe just by, like, giving people a little bit of the background background? Of your sort of somewhat postmodernist, I would I would argue, analysis of um, how how definitions work in politics.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, just as a note to how long you engage with the Twitter troll. Um, not at all. Um,
0: I think. <laughs> Uh, uh, or, 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 <laughs> but what about the deep, meaningful relationship that will get him to only, something, only, something, something? You,
1: you only engage with the Twitter so insofar as you are gaining some personal pleasure out of it. But that's – when I talk about building relationships, that's not at all what I have in mind. Um, but yeah, to, to, to the point about language. <laughs> um, so I'm very influenced here by the work of Michael Frieden, um who I know a little bit, actually, and have had on my podcast. And this – I'll be very daring and try to sum up his whole approach here, which is that this idea um, that people are fighting over the meaning of words as part of um, political ideological battles is neither something new nor something that's like on the side or ancillary or adjacent to political argumentation, that actually political argumentation is at its core, at its roots, competitions for the control of language, and it's particularly competitions for the control of moral and value language. What does it mean for something to be fair? What does it mean for something to be just? What does it mean to be a liberal, to be a socialist, to be a conservative? And at the heart of Frieden's analysis is the idea that there's always going to be this irreconcilable competition over the meaning of these words and it's in that competition that we find the true nature of the political or or part of its nature
2: do you think that one of those words would be like the word racism
1: yes absolutely um I, i can talk a bit more about that um i mean very briefly yes so um just within so say the american case you have a case where conservatives tend to use a much more restrictive definition of racism to mean something like the self-conscious belief in the superiority of your own race, right? Whereas liberals would also talk about subconscious racism. They would also talk about institutional racism. So a liberal comes along and says, America is a racist country. Now, what the liberal means by that is America's institutions tend to operate so as to benefit white people, and many white people are walking around with cultural biases, right? What the conservative hears is the conservative hears America is a country where the vast majority of people believe in the superiority of the white race self-consciously. And what's obviously at stake in that competition isn't just a policy prescription, it isn't just um, do we support affirmative action or not? What, what's really being fought over there is the meaning of the word, right? Mm-hmm. And Frieden says, um, whoever can control the meaning of words holds a society by its throat. That you can have whatever policy you want to pass, but if you could get everyone agree to think racism is what you say it is,
0: that's real power. Mm-hmm. He who controls the spice controls the universe. Um, I Yeah, it goes all the way back to like Socrates, right? Like when you read the dialogues, like 90% of the dialogues is arguments over the definitions of words like justice, where it's a fight about, you know, deep questions about the relationship between the self and the other in terms of moral obligation. And then you get to Aristotle, who says that morality and politics are really almost basically just the same thing at a different level. Um, and I think – I, I want to just clarify here because I, I, I agree a lot with your analysis of the way that this fight plays out in the real world. I, I want to say it seems to me that this is – and I think you would agree – compatible with the kind of moral realism. Whether or not you personally buy into my view of moral realism, you would, I think, agree that it could be true that there are better and worse definitions of fairness, for example – um, but that in the real world what we're gonna all be doing is fighting a war with imperfect evidence, you know between competing intuitions. Yes, definitely. So yeah, there's better and worse definitions of fairness. and you
1: can see that really clearly by there's just unintelligible or self-contradictory definitions of fairness. You can say like um, fairness is having a round a round square or something, right? Like mm-hmm. so yes, there's definitely worse ones let me put it to you this way. Um, Wittgenstein says of language, don't think, but look, right? And so what, what, what I'm saying with my analysis of political ideology is just look. Look at what's actually being debated. Look at what's actually being contested. Look at how these words are actually being used. And then, you know, you can have your preferences within that, um there's nothing there's nothing about describing empirically what is actually being contested in political debate and saying that you can't have a preference. So by analogy, I could do a brain scan of you and say this emotion of friendship or love I can track to these particular neurons firing in your brain. That doesn't mean that you don't feel love, or that it's not valid that you feel love, or it's not important for your life and your flourishing that you feel love. It just means that we can describe love in a particular scientific way. By analogy, it doesn't mean you can't have moral commitments. It just means that we can describe the way those commitments manifest themselves in the
0: world in a particular hermeneutic way. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a descriptive analysis of the way that the language game is played between humans at the political level. It seems to me, which is a very important analysis because I think you're totally right that how who who wins this game has important implications for you know not just policy but how humans view themselves. Um, you know, it's why I I also am concerned with things like meta ethics and. These weird sort of philosophical questions, because I do think that even if people aren't consciously pondering moral luck over the course of their day, they are unconsciously using their views about these kinds of questions in a bunch of different downstream situations. Um, Which is necessary and inevitable.
1: We have to have ideologies. We have to make moral judgments, you know?
0: Yeah. So what do you recommend, generally speaking, in terms of how to be effective in this language game. Uh, oh, oh, wow. Um, perhaps if you wanted to tighten the
1: question a little, you mean how... Are you just asking, like, how do I think political ideologies succeed? Or
0: Yeah, I guess I'm curious, like, how do you feel like, you know, if I'm in a fight with someone over the meaning of a term, like, fairness... What moves do you feel like, what are the moves that you go towards to try to, if you were to try to get someone to buy your version of fairness over someone else's?
1: I mean, so in terms of like the local instance, I have, you know, particular argumentative strategies that I can employ. So I'll give you one, right, just as an example, is I quite like to construct arguments that mirror their use of concepts back to them. Um, And actually, conservatives tend to be a little better at doing this than than liberals. Um, So we tend to have a sort of classically liberal set of concepts around freedom, individuality, rationality, the public-private divide, that serve as a sort of common ground for ideological discourse. They're sort of a lingua franca. Um, So if a conservative is arguing for prayer in schools, say, they won't say because of biblical truth, they'll say... um, well, I believe that children should be taught both sides of the argument and, you know, left to assess the evidence on their own mind. In other words, they've translated from a set of conservative concepts into appealing to a set of classically liberal concepts. So, likewise, if I was arguing for gay marriage, say, and I was arguing with um, someone on the political right, I wouldn't appeal to an, um, um, an innate sense of human dignity or, um, social justice concepts like mm-hmm. oppression or so on, I would say, well, listen, we live in a capitalist society. We live in a regime of contracts. And if two individuals wish to contract together in a particular way that doesn't harm any outsiders, surely that's within the social system that we have and that we both value. That it's just an, just process this as another form of business relationship. And that's not how I would it's think sort of, about it's it. Sort of like,
2: it's sort of like the libertarian argument, right? That's that's what I found to be the most successful there is to use the libertarian argument for uh, gay marriage specifically.
1: Yes, and uh, yes, and I, I, I have, yeah. having done this personally, right? Um, as it sounds like you have, um, that is the most effective, and it's the most effective because I'm appealing to particular conceptions of moral categories and concepts that they can accept, right? I'm mm-hmm. saying well, what is the premise that I can
0: get in on here, right? So this is the kind of moral foundational code switching that folks like Jonathan Haidt I think are are right is a good persuasive strategy that like if you're trying to talk to someone about If you're trying to get on the same page with someone else about a concept, especially a moral concept, the more you can appeal to the kinds of foundations that they are more likely to – like if they're a liberal, they're more likely to be invested in the harm – versus care dimension and the fairness justice dimension rather than the purity dimension for example whereas if they're from a very religious background they may be more sympathetic to arguments from purity and loyalty and authority now i I do think you have to be careful of course that when you engage in that kind of thing that you aren't that you don't do it in a way that comes across as sort of um, you know, doing a a, a version, doing a, a sort of cheap version of what their their views are that you have to like, it has to feel, I think, sincere in appeal. Like it can't just be sort of like when atheists will sometimes, you know, use a quote from the Bible, but they'll use it so clearly with disgust for the Bible that like you're not going to effectively get anyone to think that you you were taking their source material seriously when you cite it in that way.
1: Yes. And by analogy, for instance, anyone who grew up working class or black in the United States knows what it is to have a dinner table voice and a job interview voice, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean there's something fundamentally deceptive about that person. It just means in the same way as people are multilingual, you're multidialectic. And you have a a particular language for the the dinner table and a particular language for the job interview. And I think everyone understands and accepts that. It's just a different form of communication that's applicable to the space. But if I were to go into a black person's home and start speaking heavily at everyone would be immediately on edge because it's obviously deceptive, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's a great analogy. Uh, so a great point on your part. The, the other point I'd make, though, is, is we shouldn't take people's fundamental moral commitments as just set things that we have to work around. These mm-hmm. are things that can change societally. So... You know, we would all regard it now, even conservatives, as abhorrent if a job advertised and said it was only available to white people or only available to men. But even a couple of generations ago, that would have been completely normal and legitimate. I
0: want you to know there would be people on Twitter who would stand that and they would link to like – the hamilton casting calls that require people of color and they would say well why isn't this all wrong then too sorry go, oh, ahead. go ahead
1: yeah fine we, and we can get into that um <laughs> yeah no look there is no view so stupid that you won't get 10 percent of people to believe it right but um the, the idea that though conservatives are going to have conservative foundational moral commitments and you know we just have to work around that is actually really wrong these commitments change and they at some times and places they can change very rapidly. So if I'm in the moment where I'm trying to dissuade you of something now, then I'm going to try and talk in a way that is intelligible or at least neutral to you. Um, as a more longer-term strategy, we have to think about how we construct society and how society unfolds itself um such that it does produce changes in um the overall categories and concepts through which we process the world so there is model change um and that's really freaking complicated and i don't have a single like silver bullet for how that sure, works sure. you know
0: yeah do you worry that like it, you know if so much of this is a language game that we're seeing sort of a new tower of babel going on on the internet with a proliferation of all these different subcultures and all these different sort of in-group languages that like, is it just going to become incredibly hard in this balkanized world to communicate politically across any lines? Um, well, that's always been
1: true, right? Mm -hmm. So go back to one of my favorite political periods is like the 1860s, the 1870s, where you get the sort of real birth of modern progressive liberalism, which I love. But you also get all of these proto-socialisms like Fourier and Saint-Simon and all of this. And they're all completely fucking insane. Sorry, I don't know if we can swear on this show. Oh, yeah, you can totally fucking swear
2: all the time
1: but you have all of these it's not just like marxism which has a very codified and like um jargonistic language they all have their own language that they're developing and they're all impenetrable Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. this idea of like all these different subcultures having their own internal language that's then impossible to translate even to other people who theoretically should agree with them this is nothing new um this is always been here right certainly Mm -hmm. it's always been here since at least we've had the printing press but you know maybe even much further back Um, and then I think like again following from freedom there's this move you can say where you go well let's just accept that that is the the water in which we're swimming right Mm -hmm. and then well is it necessarily a problem like Mm -hmm. it's a problem if the goal is to reach some ultimate consensus. But if you accept that consensus is impossible, and maybe in some senses, once you really understand why it's impossible, undesirable, then this just becomes the world. And that's it,
0: you know? Okay, but how does that apply to Brexit?
1: Um, Do you want to cash the question out a bit more?
0: I mean, you're saying, you know, there may just not be a path to agreement, and I agree with you, And it looks like currently, right, the the whole British system is paralyzed by the inability to reach an agreement because of this kind of divergence of perceptions of reality that has gone along with this divergence of perceptions about language, it would seem like.
1: um, Yeah. Now... When I say what this isn't a problem, I don't mean there are no political problems. right, right There right. are obviously on the ground political problems, and there's better mm-hmm. and worse answers to it. But look, look let's take the, the case of um, Brexit. Um, politics at its heart is the primordial quest for certainty. It's the quest at a conceptual level for a final ordering a final set of values. It's the quest Mm -hmm, at the mm -hmm. practical level for the final establishment of control, the the ability to say, this is the way that we're doing things, right? Um, But that certainty, both at the conceptual level and at the practical level, uh, unravels the minute you think you have it in your hands. So you, you have these big things like elections and referendums and The aspiration of those who push them is for them to be final, but then it unravels again and you have to search for it. So we have this referendum that says we're leaving the European Union, and that seems final. But then what on earth does that mean? Are we leaving the the European Court of Justice? Are we leaving the common trading area? What's going to happen with Ireland? And then let's say we find a solution. Let's say the the quote-unquote worst happens, and we do a hard Brexit, that again will seem like a final answer, but it won't be. It'll still be contested and debated, and the people who want to remain, they're not going to have gone away. And then we'll have to come back again and try for certainty again. And you can sort of be depressed about that and say, we're never going to get certainty. Or you can just say that that is what the political sphere is.
0: Very impressive, white of you. I was good. I, I I'm very on board with what you're saying. I appreciate all of this. I think it's excellent stuff. So, what do you think, GW? Do you have any questions?
2: It it's, it seems like there's this notion of how do we how do we make change happen, and then there's the what ought we to do, and uh, in in specific situations, right? It, and it's a difficult one because there's the moral side of like certain groups of people, it would be inappropriate to say that they ought to behave in a certain way. Uh, and that it would be in a way super auditory for them to behave in a uh, in a way that actually would outcome change, right? You know, because you mentioned many times before, Erin, that, um, you know, someone having an emotional outburst at something is totally right, and I totally agree with that. Um, And it seems that statistically that that doesn't actually outcome any change. And Toby, it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about is very much like in order to produce change, it seems to you that we need to do X, Y, and Z to make that happen. That's sort of the the Mm -hmm. broad strokes I'm sort of getting here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think... Well, I I think it it's hard. I think T- Toby's right that like there are no silver bullets here. I think sometimes emotional engagement, sometimes emotional outbursts can work. Um and I think, you know, that we are stuck sort of struggling through uh having having imperfect structures that are that like you're never going to get like Toby said this complete um account that that will we get the same question in ethics too and it really is another example of like ethics and politics just being the same thing at different scales where it's like people ask me if we're going to get a unified theory of normative ethics and i just don't think it's ever going to happen i think it's too complicated with too many irreducible competing intuitions for you to ever be able to sort of settle the questions. So the process is always going to be this ongoing dialectic between corrections and overcorrections and and stuff like that.
2: And so I'm wondering, Toby, from your perspective, so something that I noticed that happens a lot in the political sphere, not just with individual conversations with non-political people, but also in conversations or in Debates that happen at the political level, uh, there's oftentimes this like reducing, like, all right, let's just pretend for a moment you're um, progressive and I'm conservative, right? I have this notion of what a progressive is in my head, and it's the worst case of everything. Hmm. And I project that onto you and onto the conversation we have. Right. And, and it may also happen in the opposite direction, right? Um, I'm not suggesting that it doesn't happen in both directions Uh, because I think it does like how how do you combat something like that when you're having that conversation with someone and they're clearly pulling from the worst case scenario of views that you may have but also you may not have
1: yeah and I, again, there's no silver bullet here. I can talk, if we want to talk about, like, what I do. Where
2: are the silver bullets? That's the question. Where yeah. do we find these magical silver
0: bullets? <laughs> Why do we need to kill werewolves?
1: <laughs> are they on Amazon? Do you not find there to be something a little wolfy about the new right? Um. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I... Yeah, I mean, in the moment when I'm dealing with that, I I sort of employ a mixture of tactics which are contradictory. I try to say, you know, I'm representing my own views and here's what they are. But I'll also sometimes just bite the bullet and defend a label that I feel is unfair. So I'll often just say, yeah, I'm an SJW. Like, I'll just take that label. It's just a starting point, right? Mm -hmm. Like, You
2: said there were no magic bullets and then you just said you were going to bite the bullet. You're, on, you're talking on two sides. The, of your it's mouth a, a normal, normal bullet. bullet. You don't, you don't bite <laughs> silver <laughs> bullets. <laughs> oh, oh, I missed that part. It's a normal bullet. Okay, I'm on board.
1: <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to find a different metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's bullets forever in this
0: world. We live in Bullet Town now.
2: <laughs> this is what I provide to the podcast. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I don't think. That there's an easy way out of that. I think there's better and worse ways out of that. And I think um, having these conversations in person or at least online like this helps. I think um, having um, some sort of relationship outside of the political debate helps. This is why, like, as wanky as it sounds, civil society and common culture are important, right? And social social bonds are important mm-hmm. um i also think overall societal norms are important and i also think to get back to this idea of like long-term change um things can just change P- people's views can just change very rapidly and for reasons we don't fully understand um and sometimes it's for, for the right reasons and sometimes it's for the wrong reasons
0: mm-hmm. um so before you get too far out of time i was one of, Another one of the things besides fairness that I wanted to ask you about the language game that I see a lot online especially is the language game over centrism versus extremism. That like a lot of people want to claim the term centrist. Other folks really like to claim the term radical. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about that particular fight. If you self-identify as centrist or radical or if you feel like you're one of the people who gets put in either camp depending on who you're arguing with I argue it what are your what are your experiences of this yeah
1: I avoid the label of radical if for no other reason that it seems to really annoy radicals um, <laughs> I have I have, a, <laughs> I, have a, I have a lot of conversations where people just seem to want to get me to say but you're a radical right and it's it's like um so
0: do you hold any radical views? Like this meeting turtles. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so um I think though there's that the that the, like throughout this conversation that the, there has been this thing that you're bumping up against. And it's not just you, it's everyone, or like where you're wanting politics to become fully rational, and it isn't. And I'm not the first one to make this analogy. I think the person who does it best is the political theorist Theresa Bejan. Um, where she says, Gotta understand understand these, these forms of political self-identification like you would understand a church congregation, right? People mm-hmm. want to say, I am Catholic. Mm-hmm. I am a Jesuit, yeah. Yeah. right? Now, when they're invoking that label, is what they're doing invoking a particular set of theological beliefs? Partly, but not fully right, that they're invoking a sense of community and belonging, as well as a sense of otherness from other people. When people say I'm a radical or I'm a centrist, I interpret it much more as claiming membership within a particular congregation than uh, claiming ownership over a particular set of policy views. Because like, I, I avoid the label radical just because I know the people in that church, <laughs> um, and it's just not where I choose to go to worship on Sundays.
0: So, so do you identify with the liberal church then?
1: In I identify with a now basically extinct church of progressive liberalism of John Stuart Mill and L.T. Hobhouse and John Maynard Keynes. But that, that's that's gone historically.
0: I'm still part of that church. I still use the term progressive unironically. Yeah. Um, But there's
1: there's a similar church of centurism, um, which, which, like religious communities, is is defined in part by ideas of purity, by ideas of, of being inducted into a community with others, of ideas of the sacred and the profane either. And again, like we were talking about with the quest for certainty, I don't necessarily see that as a problem to be corrected for. That is just how human beings express
0: themselves politically. Right. Right. That makes perfect sense. Um, that, That being said, right, so you're not a radical, right? Do you hold any views that people would generally think of as being particularly radical? Oh, yeah, like all of my policy conclusions. Um,
1: I'm not radical. but Everything I believe is radical.
2: (laughs) Yeah, why is this
0: a confusing concept for people? I I want to seize the means of production very moderately.
2: (laughs) I feel like we're going back to the silver bullet, biting bullet thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I mean, just to quickly run through it, um, I'm increasingly convinced that prisons should no longer exist at all. I think that um, just as we talk about um, our, our uh, democratic power being held accountable, I think we increasingly need to talk about corporate power being held accountable. I think um, that there is a reckoning on race that that is already imminent in our affairs and i would support things like reparations or maybe even more more radical ends um i do think that the dichotomies of male and female and homosexual and heterosexual are modern constructs that are quite oppressive and we need to move away from a a bunch of other stuff i can run down the list um i guess what what keeps me from being two feet in the camp of radical is i've never understood um and I don't endorse a revolutionary theory of change. Um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, like a lot of people on the left, or the, the far, far left, of which I, I do run in these circles, um, talk about when the revolution comes, and I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And what's more, I don't think they know what the fuck they're talking about. And actually the idea of change through the system, which doesn't mean purely just voting, it can mean protesting, it can mean the civil rights movement, it can mean um societal change and changing consensuses, but that sort of um evolutionary, could we say, theory of change, which has, to be fair, let us down massively in America recently, I think historically that has been a, a more moral, not not a more practical, a more moral theory of change. Revolutions kill the old and the young. And when I look at the far left right now, if nothing else, I don't I don't see people who are ready to have their families die for this. And that's not necessarily a judgment, but I don't see it. And you would have seen it in the radicals of the late eighteen hundreds, and I don't see it today. And so that's why I don't consider myself a radical. And it's also just so naive. There's this deus ex machina in their theory that we're going to have all these grievances
0: and then the fucking revolution will come. So you're a ideological, uh, uh, you're a progressive radical with a pragmatic uh, um, streak about the, the way to achieve that incrementally. Um, which which I, I am sympathetic to, uh, and I I guess that means that you and I face the same objection about the response being: Do you really think that we're ever going to achieve any of the things that you claim to want through that incremental approach before you know climate change consumes us all or something?
1: Um. So let's just say, you know, that was the view given. I'd say, okay. Mm-hmm. Do you really think we're going to change any of those things through the violent overthrow of the American government?
0: Sure, I don't. Th- I, yeah, you're right. Like if we go to like sovereign citizen levels of radical, right? If we're talking about, I mean, like there is a way in which like the anarchist left and the militia right touch tails on this one in sense of um, like both thinking that somehow they're gonna overthrow the current system and replace it with a more functional one when it's just like. You know, bureaucracies, like you say, evolve over time to serve functions and like they can get worse or better at them. But you know, the idea that you're gonna cut one down and put a perfectly functioning one in its place immediately, like there are experts way more expert than any of us who have tried to engage in sort of radical alteration of systems and and it's a it's a mess a lot of the time.
1: With this important difference, the conservative mouth breathers who go to cabins in the woods and shoot turkeys, they will at least have shotguns in their hands when they're vaporized by government drones. What is our plan? I mean, have you ever seen a group of people in all of human history less equipped to fight a revolution than Antifa?
2: I, I, I think it's interesting because in a way it seems like we're our generation is so used to things happening in the immediate, right? We're so used to things happening so instant and quick, And this idea of having to have some sort of change go through a political, a democratic political process, which is inarguably very slow, uh, feels like the only way to actually make this thing happen as fast as I want it to happen is through some revolutionary means uh, without really comprehending what it takes to do that and what all of that actually means.
1: Yeah. And just look at it, look at it as like probability. Look at it as if you were placing a bet in poker. and let's stipulate that you're short stacked and you have a bad hand in poker. Like it's not good. Like let's stipulate that, you know, we have not great odds of getting it passed um through the system, right? Um, we probably have even worse odds of getting it passed through revolution and not only that, but revolution carries with it risks of making everything worse. That the progressive theory of change doesn't. But just to push back a tiny bit, just because you have a theory of change, it doesn't even have to be through all the nice constitutional norms, but just that doesn't throw out existing civilization, right? Um that doesn't mean it has to be slow or incremental. Um look look at the the radical changes that happened in Western democracies in the late 1800s, in terms of incorporating almost all adult men into the voting mass. That happened very quickly and was very disturbing to people at the time. Or look at how quickly welfare states were set up immediately after World War II. It was like within a four-year period in many countries. And all of that was achieved with radicals and progressives working in unison towards a radical goal but through through a, a, a process orientated theory of change. Um, and so hopefully what I hope in America is we're seeing a new consensus around the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, um, all of this that, that that more radical and it isn't even that radical a vision, right? It's just social democracy, but like that vision can then be attached to, um a theory of change that could actually work that's my hope anyway and by theory of change i'm not saying we have to be nice to republicans let's start doing stuff like making uh washington and puerto rico states so that we have more votes in the senate let's get rid of the filibuster let's if we have to be ready to stack the supreme court let's um start let no i'm completely fine with like coloring outside the lines constitutionally What I'm sceptical of is I remember visiting... I'll say this and then I'll stop. Um, I remember visiting a number of the Occupy things when they got started. And when I got there, it had devolved into an open sectarian war on who took the trash out and who did the dishes. And the desire to hit the reset button on civilization had all too painfully been realised. And it just doesn't work right and so if you say there's only a 10% chance of it getting past the way i'm talking about fine there's a 2% chance of this grand revolution does that all make sense uh
0: yeah so i mean i'm i'm sympathetic to everything you're saying though i uh am a little anxious i mean like here's what i'll say i'm sympathetic to it which as a you know someone trained with postmodernism i'm anxious about anything that i'm sympathetic to so uh you know but i get where you're coming from and i i it makes me want to as someone pointed out on twitter we, we, should, we need to have more uh extreme views on represented on this show politically i mean i think you certainly are extreme in certain ways as you have pointed out but like i think they mean things like you know anarchists um so but i'm i'm also you know i'm, I'm, I'm pretty social contract oriented so i think that what I hear you saying is we shouldn't take away the concept of the social contract. We should work within the social contract. Sometimes we should rewrite it very radically, but we shouldn't do away with the concept, it seems like, which I think is true.
1: Yeah, and yes, yes, exactly. And look, I, I completely agree that we should be talking to anarchists and Marxists and whoever. Right? I've spent most of my life having these conversations, and I'm not, ruling out more radical measures in advance um when i critique the idea of the revolution i critique it because i see it as a placeholder a deus ex machina something that the the bridges a gap in your theory that you're unable to bridge with actually just a specific concrete plan um mm-hmm. and if you can show me something that fits in that gap that, that, that is even remotely plausible and that's then let's talk about it because like I say the current legislative strategy for the far left is a bit of a long shot too so you know let's have the conversation
0: mm-hmm Yeah, so our Making the Void Livable this week brought to us by Toby, who has a very fascinating suggestion, in my opinion, for someone who lives in New York City. Toby, would you like to um, make the most extreme um, policy suggestion you've made this whole episode?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I don't think this is that extreme, but people... (laughs) I'm, I'm setting you up. I think when... Yeah, how do you deal with, like, fundamentally oppressive and also irrational and chaotic political systems... Um, I always like to recommend this very simple idea of interacting with the humans around you in your everyday life, looking people in the eye, and to to, to use a phrase, right, participating in the brotherhood of man, but at, um, at a more practical level, like try and um, interact with strangers in your life.
0: Yeah, I think this is another, it's an interesting and sort of less talked about, corollary to the stuff y'all were saying earlier about like how do you convert someone from a horrible view you know through relationships with real people like i think that there is a shared experience of humanity that keeps people's ability to empathize sort of alive and fresh and flourishing that comes from the simple acts not not of like confront you know like confrontational interaction but just of you know personal interaction with people that didn't need to be personal. The recognition that like, not all of our relationships have to either be deeply meaningful or transactional to still be humane. So, yeah,
2: uh, I, I'm sort of interested. I know Aaron is an introvert. Toby, I'm not sure about yourself. I'm an ambivert. So I sort of fall in both of those camps. Um, but I, I personally try to do this a bit every day. I, I'm one of those people that hold, you know, I hold a door open for just about everyone. Um, uh, I sometimes go out of my way to do things like that. Um, I try to do things like looking people in the eye and saying hi, or, um, uh, you know, even just smiling at someone and things like that. And I don't know, I guess for me, it, it, in a way can make these small little happy moments, uh, in a day that may not be really great, that may have these large milestones of depression or large milestones of, you know, some terrible thing happening, that just these small things can sometimes add up to quite a bit.
1: Yeah. And when you open yourself up to that, what comes through the door isn't just a silly, nostalgic communitarianism or even a thin conception of virtue. What comes through the door is often a whole load of stupidity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is So I live in New York. What I am talking about, I am talking about when the guy is like, hey, motherfucker, give me $2. Um, You go, hey, I'm sorry, no.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I am talking about that level of interaction as well.
0: I'm I am, I am supportive of you. I, I do think you underestimate how radical that suggestion really is for a lot of human beings. But like I, I get I get where you're coming from, and I think it's a interesting suggestion. I think it's especially hard because a lot of people feel like they're low on interpersonal energy these days to begin with because everything is so crushing. And so it's hard to redouble your efforts to engage with others when it's feeling like that's what's toxifying you to begin with.
1: But can I make one final point about this? Yeah, okay. Is the, the way in which... No, no, no. Um, the, the way in which we choose how to dole out our emotional energy, as you put it, um, tends to follow social constructs that are very, very oppressive. And by participating in them, we continue to participate in oppression. Mm-hmm. So we talked about, like, are liberals intolerant for not wanting to, like, talk to conservatives? But here's the thing. I bet even the hardest liberal could sit down at a bar and have a drink and be perfectly amicable with the average conservative as long as they didn't talk about politics, right? Mm -hmm. If they were just talking about sports or the fucking weather, it would be fine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're still part of the brotherhood of man. They're still part of the moral community. The people we don't put as part of that moral community are the extreme poor, the homeless, are are people who are, are suffering... Um, because we have denied them the the treatment for medical uh, um, mental health that they might need, are people who are victims of incarceration. You know, we're just fine with someone. We're looking them in the eye. We're comfortable with them. And then they tell us that they're a felon. And suddenly that's someone we feel an interpersonal gulf with, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, what I am doing when I look people in the eye and I say hi, and I'm not like some fucking samaritan here i'm not going around trying to save any every individual homeless person or whatever but i'm i'm sort of recognizing the non-legitimacy of saying that people aren't humans if they're very poor they're not part of my moral community if they have an untreated mental illness they're not they're fundamentally outside of the realms of moral responsibility if they're a felon and i i deny that and i i try to live that denial does that make sense
0: yeah, I mean, that's some very ethical politicking. I totally get what you're saying.
1: Uh, it's,
2: with everything that we've talked about, it seems like the term radical is really just a relative term.
0: <laughs> Relatively radical. Yeah. I agree. Well, thank you, Toby. This has been excellent. I really appreciate that you've come on and talked about all this stuff, and um, we got to get you back on at some point to discuss things um, further, maybe when we find out how... Uh, which which of the countries, America or England, is going to damage itself the most politically in the long term? I think we still probably agree, Britain, right? It
1: depends. I think in the immediate run, um, Brexit's just going to like they're just going to do a delay for maybe a mm-hmm. year. Um, we shall see. Um, but then again, I not never never
0: underestimate Trump's ability to fuck things up either. Though it's true, could start a war. So, um, Toby, do you want to let folks know where they can find you? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, my show
1: is the Political Philosophy Podcast. So if you just um, just Google Political Philosophy Podcast and it's the first thing that comes up, the website is Political Philosophy Podcast, all one word. And the usual ways you can follow any podcast, you can go on iTunes or on most of the, um, the apps. Um, I have a Twitter handle. So, yeah, check us out.
0: Great, wonderful. And thanks so much for joining us. We would like to thank our top patrons, David Maslich, Nadaneta Mani, the person who controls the spice, controls the void, campquest.org, campquest.org, campquest.org. G, now that I uh, now I wish I was a clone so someone else could come up with these. And Jesse Urbenowitz and Brenda Goodman. Uh, If you would like to become a patron, find us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash embrace the void. Editing for this episode was done by Brian Ziegenhagen, uh, and the music was composed by GW, who is sorely missed. Until next time, remember, you are the void, and the void is you.